Good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan Cedeno. I am one of the associate pastors here at Christ Community. Typically, I'm with our students upstairs this service, but today I'm here. So there's a youth pastor up here. You can pray for me. Uh, but uh, it's my joy to serve our youth, but my joy to serve you guys today. Well, in our culture, we certainly love or we certainly enjoy a good love story, don't we? And whether or not you're a fan of the romantics or the stories, you know about them because our culture prizes them. We think of stories like Pride and Prejudice, stories, movies like The Notebook, make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside at the end of the story, or one of my wife's former favorites, A Walk to Remember, good Christian one. Beauty and the Beast, if you like Disney. And so we have these love stories, and even as Christians in the Bible, there's these, these love stories that are pretty enjoyable, pretty cool to see when you think of Jacob uh, and Rachel. I mean, this guy worked 14 years for one woman. That guy put in the time to, to get his wife. He loved this woman, even tolerating his father-in-law. Uh, we have Ruth and Boaz, and Boaz, despite uh, everything that Ruth has gone from, uh, spreads essentially his redeeming wings over her and brings her in and redeems her and loves her and, and rescues her from much of the calamity she's in. Hosea and Gomer, who if you've ever read Redeeming Love, that's what the book is based after. And in the Bible, uh, God tells Hosea to marry Gomer, who is a prostitute, and she is just continually unfaithful to Gomer. And yet he goes again and again to redeem her, to bring her back to himself. And even then Solomon and the Shulamite woman and the Song of Solomon and the romance there and the love story that's there. And when it comes to love stories in America, we, we know how the stories end that we like at least. And it, start, and it ends with, right, happily ever after. They lived happily ever after. But what happens in a story that after two people who once loved each other, married each other, the story is not happily ever after, but it's actually tragically ever after, sadly ever after. And today, we're going to be looking at that very thing. I just realized I forgot my clicker, so maybe Mitch or somebody could run it up. I think I might be back there. But <laughs> they're all looking for it. I'll let them look for it. But the today's sermon title is Sadly Ever After. And it's the story somewhat of David and his wife, McCall. And it ends on a sad note. Thank you, Mr. Pop Rocky. Um, and so that's the story we're going to be looking at today in God's Word. So if you stand with me, we're going to read God's Word together from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 16 to 23. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 16 to 23. This is the Word of the Lord. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Oh, sorry, I got to go up to verse 12. Started in the wrong place. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. 
and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. You may be seated. And so you could see this story and how it ends sadly, but I think it's important for us as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 to go back in a little bit of context that actually all of chapter 6 I think is meant to be understood together, preparing us for what's ahead. And so the first thing that we need to review is what happens before verse 12. And so if you weren't here last week, or just a refresher from last week, uh, David had, had thought it would be great to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem, as the ark represented the presence of God, the throne of God, as a blessing to his people. And we've relatively, in Samuel, it's been unseen, unheard of for quite some time. And so he wants to bring it into the city, and yet there's warnings in the text that they're bringing it on a cart. They're not doing it the way that God had asked them to do. They're doing it their way and not God's way. And so essentially, they're trying to say, we'll worship God on our terms and not his. And what happens is, as Uzzah, this priest, goes to touch the ark, God strikes him dead. And we're told that David is left angry and fearful because of what God has done to this man, Uzzah. And unsure, really, in the story at this point, this is where sometimes when we're too familiar with our Bible, we don't read it well, but the narrator is trying to prepare us. And he's kind of asking, what's the deal? I thought the kingdom was going to David, and is God going to bless David, or is he going to curse David? Because now Uzzah's dead, David's angry, he's fearful, and the ark goes elsewhere to the house of Obed-Edom, who was a Levite who would have served at uh, giving sacrifices uh, at the temple eventually and at the tabernacle, and it goes there. And so we're saying, what's the deal? What is going to happen here? But our story picks up in verse 12, and it was told King David the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with 
rejoicing. And so David's once fear and his anger has now turned to joy. And he realizes if God is blessing this Levite, surely God intends to bless me as he has appointed me the king over Israel. And I know that God is not intending to curse me with the ark. He's intending to bless me. And so he goes and he calls for the ark and they bring it up. And there's a sense in which David is saying, let's do it properly this time. Let's do it properly this time because really this is, all you, this is not all you need to know about the ark, but this is what you should know about the rules for the ark. They're pretty simple. No looky, no touchy, no carts. And only the Levites could carry it because they were the tribe appointed by God that would care for it. Those, that was the rules around the ark. And so this time they sort of follow all the rules. The Levites are carrying the ark. It's not on a cart. And presumably it may have even been covered or at least the Levites were the only ones carrying it and looking at the ark. And as David goes six steps, it says he offers sacrifices. And that's probably just an indication of David this time. He's like, I'm not messing around. Nobody, I don't want anybody to die this time. We're doing it the right way. And so he's offering sacrifices, saying, God, forgive us of our sins. You are holy. We realize what we're doing is not a light thing. And bringing your presence and the ark into specifically the city of David, interestingly. And the narrator is trying to give us a hint. The writer of 2 Samuel is trying to give us a hint that this story is going to have something to do with transitioning to David. Because this is the first time Jerusalem is called the city of David. And so David's there and he's celebrating and I don't know what his dance moves were. He was, it said, dancing with all his might. So he was dancing, he was rejoicing and so was the rest of Israel. And so verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which would have been a very simple religious garment. And then it says, verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And before we even get into the meat of the story, I think there's something as Christians that there's something for us here that we need to realize. In chapter 6, we see the combination of both rejoicing and trembling before God. Pastor Rick taught us so weak the last so good last week, so well last week, that God is good, but he is not safe. That God's presence demands both to be joyful and to be fearful. It requires dancing and it requires shuddering at the appropriate times. And one not need to suppress the other. And honestly, the best illustration I can think of in my own life for this is my wife and I, we uh, love to do some things that people consider extreme. We have been on the fastest roller coaster in the world. We have been bungee jumping. We have been skydiving. And some people are like, I am not interested in any of that. Uh, no, no, and no. And people ask sometimes, like, aren't you guys scared? Or doesn't that make you fearful? And I tell, tell people the same thing all the time. Of course it's scary. I'm going on a roller coaster that's going like 100 and I think like 20 miles per hour in like two seconds. I'm jumping out of a plane. I'm jumping off a bridge when everything in my body says, you shouldn't be doing this. But people who do those kind of things, what they learn is they learn to hold those things in tension. That the adrenaline and the joy of doing something that exhilarating combined with the fear that you have at the same time. It's not that you just get over the fear. It's that you just learn to live with that tension. And that's what allows you to jump out of the plane or jump off of bungee jumping. And it, it's really a similar thing, I think, that the, 
the Bible calls us to when it comes to being before the Lord. That literally, you should fear him. God is awesome. God is terrifying. Think about when people see God in the Bible. Their first response is not like, oh, hey, God, good to see you. It's, oh, my gosh, I'm going to (laughs) die because I have seen the Lord. And yet, soon after, he usually gives them news to rejoice about or a message to give. And another application for us to consider as Israel and David are celebrating is do you celebrate when the joy of the Lord as much as you celebrate other joys in your life? Uh, I'm the, the student ministry pastor here. And as you know, that means we go to camps. And uh, when we're on the way to camp on the buses, there's a very interesting observation that I make about some students. And it's that... Some of the students who have seen on youth group were there on a Wednesday night and were singing worship scones. And as you know, how great thou art, you know, arms down, not that enthusiastic. And yet when we're on that bus and we're on the way to camp, that same kid is in the back of the bus. Don't stop believing, singing journey at the top of his or her lungs. I got junior hires running through the middle of the aisle. I would walk 500 miles. And they're celebrating and they're rejoicing. And then the Swifties, all the girls in the back, Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. And as a youth pastor, you're like, no, Romeo, don't, don't. This is not good dating advice, girls. Stop listening to Taylor Swift. But the point is, right, there's just something off about that, that as a pastor, I'm like, oh, man, like, I want them to be joyful. But there's just something wrong with that, that if you're singing those songs, why don't you sing worship songs like that? Why don't you celebrate before the Lord like that? One commentator put it this way. There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but it can't be right to give all your coldness to Christ and all your enthusiasm to the world. And even if you're not a singer, you know it. Guys, you know it because on Super Bowl Sunday, you're, yeah, touchdown, let's go. You're screaming and all that. Is that what's happening in your heart when someone's baptized up here? Is that what's happening when you're celebrating what the Lord is doing in your life? Is that what you're doing when the Lord is answering your prayers? We have something to learn from David and the Israelites about what it means to appropriately rejoice before the Lord. And so I don't know what that looks like for your personality or who you are, but whatever way it is that you can express the inner joy in your heart before the Lord, ask yourself, do I do that as enthusiastically and as passionately as I do the other things that I enjoy in my life? If not, more so. And before we get into the meat of this, I really wanted to help you guys and understand as as pastors, we, we read these texts and we read these narratives. And I just wanted to give you some tips that will help you understand something like this. And as you read the Bible yourself before we get into the meat of this. And so here's some tips for understanding narrative, which means stories in the Old Testament. The first thing is, is know when the author speeds or slows down or speeds the story up or slows it down. What do I mean by that? In some parts of Samuel, several years go by in a few verses. And yet, in 2 Samuel 6, it's just a few months that go by. And in the verses we're looking today, it's really one part of a day that's going by. He's slowing down to say, hey, this is important. Pay attention to what's happening in the text. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to slow down. 
read small stories within the entirety of the book. You cannot divorce 6 Samuel 6 from what's happening in the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. Originally, these were one book together. And so much comes from understanding the transition from Saul's kingdom to David in this passage. And that Michal very much is her her father's daughter in representing the old regime, the way that Saul did things, and fighting against what God is now doing in David. And so read the small stories within the context. Observe word selection carefully. There's going to be a lot of phrases in here I point out to you guys to show you. Read the story carefully. The person who wrote the story chose those words for a specific reason. And there's other ones he chose to leave out. Other conversations, other incidents. But he's chosen these ones. Look out for the repetition of words, phrases, themes, plots. Even plots. Notice that the story today is very much like the one before with Uzzah. They're celebrating. Then there's sort of a foreboding, something bad's going to happen because they were carrying it on the cart. This time it's McCall looking out the window. And then there's a climax where something bad does seem to happen. And so it's almost like he's telling the same type of story again. And he's saying, I'm trying to tell you something about who God is. And that's the last one is God is ultimately the main character. God is the main character. The Old Testament texts and the stories are trying to tell you something about who God is. And so I think those are for some helpful tips for us today and some helpful tips for you in general as you read narrative in the Old Testament. So there was a cause for celebration. We covered that, but then there's a foreboding note, sort of a, a rainy cloud. And that's verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So there's this dark cloud that gets cast over the celebration. Like I said, it's very similar to Uzzah's story, and we see something's wrong. But I think it would also be helpful, looking at the context of all of Samuel, who's McCall? And why, does she, why is she here, and why is she in this text? And this is the last time we're actually going to hear from her. So it's worth reviewing. I put together my super theological titles for you. Boy meets girl, boy kills boys to get the girl. McCall is David's first wife. How did that happen? This is how it happened. Uh... Saul was still reigning at the time, and in that passage, uh, a bunch of men are telling David, you know, the, the king loves you, why don't you marry his daughter? He's like, I'm a peasant. I am nobody. I'm not going to marry the king's daughter. That's not how it could be done, guys. I'm not going to marry into royalty. Like, I'm a nobody before the king. But then Saul thinks to himself, as he's becoming jealous of David, well, I'll set a trap for David and make him do a seemingly impossible task and maybe even having my daughter in his house will become a snare for him that David will ultimately be brought down, either killed by the Philistines or in some other way. And he says, okay, whoever brings me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines will come and marry my daughter. Ladies, you can decide whether it's romantic or not. I don't know. I killed a hundred guys to marry you, honey. Um, and in David's case, he actually goes out and he kills 200. So he goes over and beyond. He brings them to Saul. And we are told in that narrative, McCall loved David. She wanted to marry David and she very much wanted this. But the second one, second part of their story is girl helps boy escape crazy father-in-law. 
Saul, that didn't work out, that plan. He gets more and more jealous. And one night he stations soldiers outside their home intending to kill David in the morning as he's laying in his bed. And McCall gets wind of this and she warns David. She puts basically a dummy in the bed, helps him escape out the window. And in the morning they come and Saul's like, where, where is he? And his daughter's like, look, he threatened to kill me, and I, let, I helped him out the window. And so he escapes out the window with McCall's help. Girl given to a new boy by a crazy father-in-law. David's, uh, Saul's persecution of David just gets heavier and heavier. He eventually has to leave Jerusalem to escape Saul and his persecution of him. And McCall, for whatever reason, we're not told, stays in her father's house. And Saul ends up giving his daughter to another man and said, David's gone, we're done with him, and you're now married to this man. And then the last part we see in 2 Samuel is that David comes back into Jerusalem after Saul's death. He's been uh, anointed king for a long time. He's coming into his kingdom, and he tells the former general of Saul's army, bring me my wife. Bring me McCall because we've been apart for a long time and she belongs ultimately to me as my wife. And so essentially that is the story between McCall and David. But like I said, at one time at least it said McCall did love David and yet here we find she's looking out the window and she despises David in her heart. She is searing. She has hatred towards David in this moment. And one of the things that's a key to understanding this text is, like I said, she is very much her father's daughter. And notice in the text, careful choice of words, she's not McCall, the wife of David. She is McCall, the daughter of Saul. The narrator repeats that phrase over and over again. She is the daughter of Saul. And so very much she encapsulates the, encapsulates the old regime. She is of Saul's house, and yet she is married to David. And we ask ourselves, well, how is that tension going to be relieved? God told David he was going to tear the kingdom away from Saul, yet one of Saul's household lives in David's household, is married to him, could potentially have an heir with David. And ultimately, that tension gets resolved in this story. And notice, for the first time, that the city of Jerusalem is also called, I mean, the first time that David is called King David. This is the first time in the text that David is called King David. The narrator is pointing and he's saying there's something about David, him becoming king. And as Bob brings you 2 Samuel 7, you'll really understand what the narrator is trying to prepare you for and what God promises through David and ultimately in Jesus Christ in the next couple of weeks when we get the Davidic covenant. But in a sense, the story is set up. It's McCall, the daughter of Saul, versus David, the king of Israel. And if you understand that, you'll understand this story much better, but even in the context within their marriage. And so though McCall once helped David, loved David, she's now looking down, despising him, hating this man that she once loved. And so... It passes by that in verse 16, but the narrative continues and we'll come back to McCall like the story does. Verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place and the tent that David had pitched for it. 
And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed from David's house. It's interesting here as we're being told the story. David is doing something that kings don't normally do. He's blessing people. He's offering sacrifices. And what is he wearing? He's, he's wearing a linen ephod, which was really the garments of a priest. The only people we see in First and Second Samuel wearing that is Samuel at the beginning. Hannah gave her son up to be a priest. She prayed for him. And every year she would bring a linen ephod for him to wear. Or when Saul kills many of the priests who helped David escape originally from Jerusalem, it says they all wore a linen ephod. And so it was an appropriate religious humble garment for David to wear for this exceptional occasion of bringing in the ark of God. And yet David, whether or not he authorized the priests to do this, is described as offering sacrifices, blessing the people, providing food to the people, and dismissing the people. And I don't think it's any accident that this should sound familiar to us, that a king is being described in priestly language. Because in chapter 7, God is going to promise there's going to come a greater king than David through his line. And there will be someone who is a descendant of David who will sit on the throne forever and ever. And he too is a king that is a priest. David here is acting like a priest king. He's presented by the storyteller as not only ruling over God's people, but interceding for them, acting between them. And so David very much acts like the great king to come, Jesus Christ. But Jesus is an even greater king than David is. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just wear an ephod, a religious garment. He wears the scars of his crucifixion and that he paid for sin. And he wears the body of his resurrection, which he is alive forever and ever. We just sung about that. Jesus doesn't offer a sacrifice of animals. He sacrifices his own blood, which animals were never sufficient to cover anyone's sins. They were always just a placeholder until Jesus Christ would come. And that his singular sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews tells us, once and for all was sufficient for all sins. Jesus blesses his people not just to say, hey, this is an earthly prosperity I, I, I hope for you or that I have for you, but an eternal prosperity that as if the book of Ephesians says, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places from Christ. He doesn't just bless with the food that perishes. He blesses with the food that does not perish, eternal life, that people would only repent and believe on him. And Jesus doesn't just return home to bless his household. He returns and says, I will make a place for you and you will come to dwell with me and my household. Jesus is eternally greater than what 
David was. And yet David prefigures him, starting to point us to the coming figure of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ, you just have, if you're here today, maybe you've been in church in a long time, maybe you're here for the first time, you have to wrestle with the question of how do you respond to the king and the priest Jesus? He is the priest of humanity. He represents us, or at least he represents Christians You are in Adam and in sin if you are not represented by Christ. And he is not the king of Israel. He is the king of the universe. The question is, do you recognize it? Do you see it? Is Jesus Lord of your life, king of your life? Because there's only one way into eternal life. There's only one way to God. And it's through repentance of your sin and confessing and recognizing to God how disgusting, how dirty, that your rebellion against God is owed judgment and wrath. And if you turn from that and believe on Jesus Christ, that you can be saved from the wrath of God, God will bring judgment to every person. John 3, 36, everyone or whoever believes in the Son, will have eternal life, but he who does not believe does not have life, and whoever obeys, whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. God is a good God, and he will judge every single sin. He is a good king. He will protect his people, and he will utterly destroy his enemies. The hard time we have of believing is that we are the enemy. Speaking of reading narrative texts, I'll let you in on a hint, church, when it comes to it. You are more like the villain than you are the hero. God is the hero. Jesus Christ is the hero. When you read the stories and you think, well, I'm like David or I'm like these people. You're not. You're more like McCall. You're more like a Pharisee in your own heart when you don't get your own way. That's what you should see when you study those characters, is that you see more of the sin in your heart. You see when David and even the heroes fail, I am like them. I fall short. And so have you repented and believed on the king and priest Jesus because he is your only hope? But we have to move on to the last part of our story. And it's really the sad end to the love story that seemed to have some potential. And we pick up in verse 20 in our last paragraph. And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And by the way, this is, before I read this line, this is where I think as Christians, we just need better imaginations. The text, you can sense the tone, can't you? Notice that it says David returned to bless his household, but Michal came to meet him. He didn't even make it in the house. And anyone who's married, like, you know when the arguments go down and it's going to be epic. If your wife is coming out of the house before you get the door to yell at you, it's going to be intense. Like, the kids are looking through the windows. People are watching in the house. The neighborhood's like, oh, it's about to go down right now. It is happening. And that's what is happening. And so you can imagine she she just wasn't like, oh, how the king honored himself. Like this casual conversation, how the king honored himself today. Wasn't that great, David? Dancing before all the ladies. I saw you out there. Is that what you were doing? Making yourself look good as the king of Israel? That's the type of tone I imagine McCall had when she came to David. And so a little bit of sanctified imagination, I think, helps us picture this scene. And she comes out and she is mad. Why? 
because she says, ultimately you were uncovering yourself today and before the eyes of the female servants, like one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Here's what I think about this text. I don't think David was naked. I don't even think David had his shirt off. He's wearing a linen ephod. That's what priests wore. I think, like any argument, McCall probably exaggerated. (laughs) You're dancing in the streets, and like any good argument, all of us are prone to exaggerate. But what was clear is David was not certainly wearing his kingly royal outfit. He was wearing a peasant's outfit. And she saw that, and she's probably like, no, this is not fit for a king. This is not what my father did. This is, this is not okay for how a king should act. And you're doing it before all these female servants who are before us. And she says, you're like one of the vulgar fellows. It's saying like one of the worthless guys. You're just like one of those drunk guys just dancing at the pub or the bar or something, David, before the ark, or before these servants. But the problem is, Both David and the narrator tell us she is wrong. How do we know that? Verse 14, verse 16, verse 17, verse 21. It was before the Lord that David was dancing. He wasn't doing it to impress anybody. He wasn't doing it for the female servants. And both the storyteller and David confirm, I was dancing before the Lord. And that's what he says in his response. It's appropriate for me to respond to what God is doing in this way. It was appropriate for me to respond what God was doing in this way. And so I think this is the sad part of how the love story ends. I think McCall loved the forms and not the substance. She loved David, but she didn't love the God of David. She loved the royalty. She loved everything that was happening, but she didn't really love Yahweh. And I think that because of, think of the contrast between her and her brother. Her brother was Jonathan. They were both of the house of Saul. They both are said to have loved David. They both helped David escape death. And yet, Jonathan goes to his grave still loving David, loving God, making covenants with him, And this is the only conversation we have between him and McCall. Why is that? Because I think Jonathan evidently loved through his actions and showed that he loves the God of David. And I think in large part, the reason he loved David is because God loved David. And you see it right after the battle of David and Goliath. uh, Jonathan comes back and it says his soul was knit to him. He loved him. What's the first thing Jonathan does? He takes off all his armor and he puts it on David. Jonathan was the right heir to the throne. And he knew in that moment, it's not me. Yahweh has chosen another. He's chosen David. And there's a foreshadowing. David, you take my armor, you take my sword, you take everything that is mine because it belongs to you. And there's even a foreshadowing when Saul attempts to give it to David, even before the battle. The irony that the king of Israel is giving his sword and his his, uh, garments and his stuff for battle to what will become ultimately the new king. And so Jonathan loved the God of David and not just David, but I'm not so sure about McCall. And so she loved the forms, but not the substance. And church, we have to be careful ourselves that we can love the forms of the Christian faith and not love the substance of the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about a concept of ideas, of theological truths. They are about a testimony about a person who is alive that you put your faith in. And his name is Jesus Christ. 
And we have to be careful that you don't just love the things around Christ or that you benefit from Christ and not love Christ himself. You have to love Christ more than you love the spiritual benefits from Christ. You have to love Christ more than you love reading about Christ. You have to love Christ more than you love telling other people about Christ. You have to love Christ more than you love singing about Christ. You have to love Christ more than your very life is what Paul says. I count my entire life and everything I've done as worthless if it means that I gain Christ. Not that I gain some theological idea. I gain Christ as a person. He is mine. And we have to challenge ourselves to that end. And here's the way, I think the best way to challenge yourself on that. How do you respond when the forms change? How do you respond when the forms change? What do I mean by that? How do you respond when ministry is being done that is honoring to the Lord and bringing glory to him and disciples are being made, but it's not being done in the way that you prefer or the way that you want to be done? Are you able to celebrate what God is doing? What happens when that worship song comes on the screen and it's not your favorite song, but it is a God-exalting song? Do you sing that with the same passion and fervency as you do the song you liked before it? What happens when the forums change? When you go to another church or whatever it may be and you're gonna see different forms, but it's the same substance. They're worshiping Jesus Christ. How do you respond to that? Or do you see the idolatry in your heart that maybe you worship the ministry about Christ more than you do Christ? Maybe you love this church more than you love Christ. Maybe you love the way we do ministry more than we love Christ. And that's an idol we must be careful of. Because ultimately as Christians, what we're called to is to love Christ and not just the forms, not just the things around Christ or the relationships or the connections that we make, but we love Jesus himself. And so in many ways, what this story represents, like I said, McCall versus David is really David coming to understand what Saul didn't. He wasn't afraid to humiliate himself, to grovel before Yahweh because he saw himself, I am a servant of Yahweh before I am the king of Israel. And if that means dancing in the streets and making myself a fool is the appropriate response, I will do that. And in his response to his wife and God exalting him above her father, her father just didn't get it. Saul didn't get that the king's role was to bring people into worship of God first. It wasn't about the loot. It wasn't about the conquering. It wasn't about the royal status. It was you are here to bring Israel into worship of the true king. And that is what your role is. And so David in humility, he wasn't afraid to humiliate himself. If it meant serving the Lord appropriately. But we got to end. And the story ends on this sad note. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And that's an ambiguous statement. The question I, I asked myself is, we read the beginning of Samuel. Hannah, God is the one who opened Hannah's womb for Samuel. God certainly has control of that in the story. He would certainly have control to close someone's womb. But also, based on this argument, I have a feeling that McCall and David 
no longer had marital relations to the day of her death. So which is it? And I think the storyteller is trying to tell us both. God's sovereignty, God's control of all things, God's plan that is unfolding, it will come to pass, but it's happening by seemingly ordinary circumstances of the responsible decisions of McCall. And what God told Saul, that the kingdom is being torn away from you and given to another, is happening. And you're going to continue to see it happen through 2 Samuel. But it's happening by seemingly mundane things. Some random guys kill one of Saul's sons. McCall is mad at her husband for dancing in the streets. Later, there's something that uh, David has to atone for that Saul did. And those people demand that some of Saul's sons be killed. And one by one, Saul's heirs are being killed off. And what is coming true in the earlier chapters? The house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And the house of David became stronger and stronger. Church, God is accomplishing his will if you are in Christ for your good through the ordinary circumstances of your life and the responsible decisions that you make every single day in the circumstances you find yourself in. Through the sickness, through what you decide to do with your time when you get home, through how you relate to your kids, to how you dealt with that argument with your wife, all of those things, God's plan is unstoppable, it's moving forward, but you will be held responsible for the decisions that you make and whatever you do will not thwart God's will. And so it does add end on a sad note for their love story, but it tells us something about God and that his plans are unstoppable, even though he will hold people responsible for the choices that they make throughout history. And this has to point us, this has to remind us, there's nowhere better than we see this in the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about a similar question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed him? Did God kill Jesus? Or did we kill Jesus, humanity? Which is it? Peter says a very similar thing when it comes to preaching in Acts. Acts 2, 22 to 23. This is what Paul said, I mean, this is what Peter preaches. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Oh, God did it. God planned for this to happen. He, he destined it to happen. It was the definite plan of God for Jesus to die. Yet, second half of the verse, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. You are responsible for crucifying your Messiah, Israel. And yet, at the same time, it was according to the definite plan of God. And if God can bring blessing for the irresponsible and rebellious decisions that human beings made in crucifying Christ, God can bring good from your life, Christian, no matter how hard or trivial or even in your rebellion for your good. And that's what Romans 8.28 tells us. God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Not that everything that happens to you is good. He's working all the things, good and bad, for your good. And that's a specific good to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing in your life. But if you're here and you haven't repented and believed in Christ, this is what I think God is working all things for. I think 
he's working all things so that when it comes judgment day, it will be patently obvious that your condemnation will be just. You ever notice at the end of the Bible when it talks about judgment day, it doesn't talk about faith. It talks about works. Why is that? Yes, we are saved by faith. Yes, we are made right, God, by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the work of God. Yet the works are not for God. They're for us and they're for others. Because God can see right into the heart. He knows what you really believe despite what you do. But the works will make it patently obvious to everyone that every single person's condemnation and judgment is just, that everyone who is condemned to hell, that there will be no one in hell who will say my condemnation was unjust, who will argue with God. And there was no one in heaven who will say, I got here because I am good and great. They will say, I only got here by the blood of Jesus Christ and what God has done for me. And so we have a greater king than David. We have a greater king than David, and he endured humiliation in order to, to bring us to God, to bring us to the Father. Do you know the King Jesus who died on a cross for your sin, that you would repent, and he even commands it, that you would repent and believe on him and have eternal life? He came to bring you to the Father Do you know the Father? Do you have the Father? Have you been born again as a child of the Father without Jesus Christ and repenting and believing in him? You haven't. And if you have, are you rejoicing like David rejoices? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for texts like these. Your sovereignty is being worked out in very seemingly mundane, ordinary circumstances. The marriage between a husband and a wife and an argument they have. And we know your sovereign plan can't be thwarted and we're thankful for that, Lord, because ultimately it meant the worst sin of man in crucifying your son resulted in the most magnificent blessing for us and our salvation. I pray as a church that we would not idolize ministry or the things that we do, but we would only worship Jesus Christ as a person and that our faith would be predicated and built on him and him only as our Lord our Savior, and our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.